what's going on? Yes, I called you peeps like your little marshmallowy, crunchy goodness thing at Easter, which means people. But hey, welcome, peeps, nonetheless, to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. I'm Matt Boswell, and this is episode 199. We are right on the cusp of breaking the number, man. We are right there. And today, I'm talking about something. I've had a number of people over the last few weeks say, talk about the Southern Baptist, talk about the Southern Baptist. I'm like... Okay, today I'll talk about the Southern Baptist. So uh, I'm planning on doing that here in just a minute, and not just the Southern Baptist, but I think something that uh, is true to what's been going on in the Southern Baptist, which is true to what's going on in evangelicalism, it's like the Southern Baptists are a microcosm of evangelicalism in the United States. They they might as well be synonymous in some ways, and so uh, there may be a little bit to coax out there. I don't know if this is a normal podcast or if this is more like Matt's musings about the Southern Baptist as a Southern Baptist student because you'll hear that in a minute and everything else. Now, before I get to that, um, just want to give an encouragement of another resource or tool that you might utilize in your life. And so every once in a while, I want to bring up another podcast or an article or a blog or something that you could follow along with that would be really, really interesting for your spiritual journey and development. And I came across this book. I heard this author in an interview, and I'm like, man, this Every Christian should read this book. Whether you love every part of it or not, I don't think that is as critical as the tools that it would impart to you that I think would be of great value. But it's a book called Reading the Times, and the subtitle is A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News, right? And it's by Jeffrey Bilbro, and uh, his whole book is about how Christians need to learn to interact with um the mass media in such a way that there is discernment, there's thoughtfulness, there's theological reflection, there's actual reflection. And in that, unlearning some of the bad habits, unlearning some of the traps that we easily step into. And it's an interesting book because he starts with looking at the 19th century and the kind of explosion of media then and how it became an overload for the population. And from that, people didn't really contemplate content. They didn't think through things. They just jumped from article to article to article. There was tons of, quote, fake news back then. Uh, and from that, people became sort of just like, uh, I don't know, like like interactors with a thousand little ideas and didn't have a cohesive thought. And then from that, didn't really have deep uh, kind of integrated worldview. Because of that, it was just like they were curators of little tidbits of interesting facts, but it didn't really add up to like a big, important understanding of the world. And so uh, this is really, I think, for all of us, because increasingly uh, we get our news from something that's posted on social media, or we get our news from watching it on a network or on some website that we really appreciate or whatever else. Uh, And the way that the media works nowadays is trying to pump out anything new as fast as possible. Uh, And then with that, there's not always the homework involved. And with that, there's not always the reflection on our part involved. And so all the more, it just kind of requires a sense of, hey, let's pause. Let's learn to learn better. That's kind of what that book is all about. So uh, if you were interested in that, again, it is called Reading the Times, a Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. And uh, you would probably find it pretty um, helpful, to say the least. So Um, you know, I've shared this before. One of the things I had done a few years ago is I took all social media off my phone. I took Safari off my phone because I have an iPhone. Uh, so I took basically the ability to look at the internet 
for the most part, off my phone. Uh, and that was super liberating. Now I make myself, matter of fact, I got rid of a laptop too. I make myself sit at a desktop computer to get online to read things or do things uh, because that was a way I could implement a type of self-discipline into my life by saying, you have to go to it. It's not just going to travel with you. Uh, pretty life-changing and allows me a lot more mental space to think through things in life. Hence, maybe I've tried to think about the Southern Baptist thing a little bit, maybe a little bit too much. So uh, I'm going to get into that right now. Before I do, though, I, I want to give a couple of things. First is this. Uh, I am a current ongoing student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, I'm not a Southern Baptist, but I am a student at a Southern Baptist Seminary. Um, and there was a time a few years ago that I actually considered approaching our church leaders and joining with the Southern Baptists, not because I was this giant fan necessarily, and it certainly wasn't an enemy of or anything like that, but I thought about it, and this was probably about eight years ago, I'm thinking roughly, um, but I thought about it because I thought, man, there is a certain sense of strength in numbers, uh, and when you are a part of an affiliation, the Southern Baptists, by the way, are are a denomination, but like not in the normal sense, if you've ever been affiliated with denominations, there are two kind of breeds of it. So the Southern Baptists are more of like this network of like-mindedness, but it's not like the top tier of the Southern Baptist has direct control over the local Southern Baptist church. So there is a level of autonomy that a Southern Baptist church has, but it's connected to this broader affiliation. And in that the affiliation can kick out a church, let's say if they feel like it's gone off the rails, but the affiliation can't control what that local church does. They can't say, we're going to remove your pastor or we're going to change your elder board or whatever it is. They can't do that. So it's a little bit more of a loose type denomination. There's other denominations that are really, really strict and tight from the top down, like the Methodists. So the Methodists are very controlled in a top down model all the way to the local church. The local church is very controlled in many ways, at least on paper by the structure of the Methodists. So the Baptists, a little bit more loose, right? So that's kind of what's going on. And so I thought, man, maybe an affiliation because our church had been historically in a denomination, in a Methodist denomination, one of the offshoots of Methodism and, and had experienced that top-down control level, we don't even know you by name, but we're going to tell you what to do kind of thing. And so, you know, we had no interest in being a part of a denomination ever again because we've kind of seen the underbelly of some of that. And maybe I'll talk about that too in this musings on the Southern Baptist. Um, so, but I thought, man, an affiliation isn't so bad because again, you you have friends, like-mindedness, everything else, and, and that kind of thing. But in the end, I'm like, nah, that doesn't seem like a smart move. And now, eight years later, it's proven itself to be true. So, if you are not aware of maybe what's gone on in the Southern Baptist, even just this week, what's happened is a change in uh, presidential leadership. Uh, and so, uh, it was Ed Littleton just won the presidency over Mike Stone uh, in a in a kind of a runoff where Littleton got uh, 52% of, of the vote and kind of slid by. And he's seen as a little bit more of a moderate in the Southern Baptist, where Stone was seen as more of a conservative. Now, uh, I would say Littleton is actually um, a conservative as well. Like he's theologically conservative and, and even in many ways politically he's conservative. Uh, but he had a little bit of a reputation positively for trying to bring more racial reconciliation to the denomination where Stone was definitely kind of 
petitioning this idea that, uh, you know, we need to resist some of the ideas like critical race theory and things like that. And so he was definitely appealing to that harder right element of the Southern Baptist base, but in the end uh, did not win the presidency. And they went with what we're going to consider to be a more moderate person by Southern Baptist standards. He's not a moderate by moderate standards, but he's a moderate by Southern Baptist standards, right? So that's what's happened. And people are kind of cheering and haranguing like, yes, they pulled the Southern Baptist back from the brink of just hard right QAnon catastrophe. You know, that's kind of the way it's kind of being seen. So some people are kind of breathing a sigh of fresh air, like, okay, we, we, we're maybe got a, a wiser, smarter, thoughtful, more peacemaking guy at the helm. And maybe he can build bridges, which is a lot of the lingo that's being used, as opposed to blowing up bridges or tearing or building walls or whatever else he wants to tear them down and bring a sense of unity to the Southern Baptist. So in that sense, those are all good things. But I think there's this deeper reality of like, what what led the Southern Baptist to this place? It's like, that's kind of point one. And then point two, the fact that the moderate barely won the presidency says the Southern Baptists are pretty divided still. Like, you know, like no matter how you're going to cut this, there is not a unified vision within the Southern Baptists to be what the Southern Baptists feel they should be, want to be, desire to be. And there's just little factions that are within there, right? So that's kind of what's going on with it. Now, if you look at what's been going on in the Southern Baptist ranks now for a long, long time, uh, there has been a lot of debate and discussion whether there is um, some either A, um, blind racist bias or overt racist bias within the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and within the Southern Baptist leadership. So that's kind of one element there. The other has been, frankly, there has been a lot of sex abuse issues within the Southern Baptists. And what they know, what is on paper, is if they do a thorough independent investigation, they said it's going to be far worse than what we already know. Uh, and that's been part of the resistance to having an independent investigation done because with one that's been controlled by committees that actually wanted to bury stuff, it was bad. So there is this concern that, hey, if you have a truly independent investigation where the executive committees that oversee such things are out of the equation, we don't even know all we're going to find. And so that's kind of a bad thing. Third thing they've been dealing with is the handling of women within the SBC. Uh, it claims to be complementarian, but is a little bit more of a, a little Miss Honey. Why don't you go back to the kitchen barefoot and just have us our babies uh, and and have nice women's Bible studies and put on the potlucks, like, you know, like that? Or is there a little bit more like we want to try to figure out how to have equality, even in a biblical complementarian model? They've been dealing with all of that stuff as well. Uh, and then they've been dealing with just a rift in the political Part of it where you have some people like most Southern Baptists would vote Republican. They're going to be conservative on the political side. But there was some divide on President Trump. And, uh, you know, there was like some people that really just like thought he was more harmful to the label of Christianity, like aligning with him and his dispositions, it was harmful to Christianity, where there, where others felt that, no, he was defending the right of Christianity to exist in this country, and we should totally back him. And so from that, the Southern Baptists were just divided at many le levels, right? Um, and so they have a lot of mess to clean up. And when you get a vote where the, the winner, who's the moderate, only wins by a couple of percentage points in this kind of model, it shows that you're still really messed up probably. And I, I think that's going to be the case. And I think that gets to the broader problem of what we then see kind of across 
the evangelical spectrum even, where we have seen over the course of, you know, years, you know, I was just watching a thing uh, from something that happened this last weekend related to Willow Creek and how Willow Creek continues to not really handle all of the sexual abuse issues around Bill Hybels very well. Or I think about going back to my location here in the Pacific Northwest and Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill and how he's starting to get a following again, but he's never really repented for what he did. He never said, yes, I messed things up. Yes, I sinned against our population at Mars Hill. There was just never an ownership. And yet people are like, but this guy's a good Bible teacher and he's spirit led and we learn stuff from him. And and so they're going after him because he's very funny and he's very clever and he's quick witted and he's got an aggressive posture that people like strength and their leaders. And so they're back after that. And I go back to James McDonald with, you know, uh, Harvest, uh, Christian fellowship and the things that were there and, you know, kind of the list goes on and on and on. I was just reading a thing about a youth pastor that was just arrested with child pornography charges. He's putting a camera in a bathroom to film girls and then other pastors that have abused their office or had affairs or whatever else. And this seems to be a toxin that is just inside the evangelical movement in the United States. And the Southern Baptists also have experienced all those same problems. And it just seems that there is a worldliness in the name of Jesus that's in the church. And from that, there is a lot of sin that's going on in organized religion that isn't being called out because I think at the core of it, there's this thing that says, hey, if these guys are successful, it doesn't matter if they are spiritually unfaithful we're going to turn a blind eye. We're going to push it under the rug. We're going to try to avoid addressing it because you know what? They're doing so much for the kingdom. The SBC is doing so much for the kingdom. Driscoll was doing so much for the kingdom. The list goes on. Hybels did so much for the kingdom. That was the kind of the conspiracy or not the conspiracy. The, the big hoopla at Willow this last week is when it was raised. Why don't you guys talk about Hybels more? It was, well, he did so much good for the kingdom. We don't know what to say. And it's like, uh, why don't you say that he has not repented for the fact that he took advantage of many women and destroyed people's lives? Like, you know, like, why don't you do that? And like with the SBC right now, it's like, what do you want to say to these 300 plus cases of sexual abuse in the SBC? Well, it's making us look bad as leaders. Well, get over it. How about you actually address the problem? How about you actually call out the sin? How about you actually hold yourselves accountable? How about you actually do something that says the victims matter more than the people that were the victimizers that happened to be your leaders that did good things for the kingdom? Like, this is where the whole house has to be put back in order. And frankly, the poison that is in evangelicalism at large and why we don't deal with some of these problems is because, frankly, we love success more than we love faithfulness. And I think as Christians in America, we want to look like we're getting ahead, that we're achieving, that we're making a dent, making a difference. And so we rally to people that are perhaps more successful because we think they're doing more stuff for Jesus because they have bigger numbers or they have more books or they have notoriety or whatever else. And yet the toxin that is inside shows that the spirit is not a part of that movement. That's not revival. That's not spirit-led movements. That's just man-induced successfulness that Jesus isn't going to bless, but the world's definitely going to curse when the stuff comes out, right? And so this is what the SBC needs to do. It needs to actually say, you know what? We care more about the faithfulness than the success. We're actually going to address the problems that we see. We're going to acknowledge the fact that we're probably more blind to our problems than aware of our problems. And we need some people to come in and actually tell us where we're broken or we're never going to be able to fix it. And that's going to be where the Southern Baptists ultimately are going to struggle. It is, uh, it's an in sown microcosm where its own groups or its own accountability system. 
And this is what I saw in the denomination that I was briefly in, right? That the accountability system was inside the system itself. And so when it's like asking bankers to be regulators of banking, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, can you really do that? Can you ask a banker to regulate his own bank? And well, the obvious answer should be no, but that's what's happening in the Southern Baptists. They're asking their own to be their own self-regulators. And this is always going to be sort of the problem when there's actually problematic things. Now, now that doesn't mean that every church is problematic. I think there are some healthy churches, and you see a healthy church and that there's never scandal associated with that church. You see healthy churches where the leaders are transparent. They're transparent with finances. They're transparent with their own lives. They, you know, they don't try to grab power. They try to give power away. They're not trying to be controlling. They're not trying to be domineering. They don't demand things. They're not caustic or crass or whatever else. There's a humility that you can obviously see. There's a peacemaking that they clearly long for. And and I see a lot of healthy churches, frankly, and I know this sounds like now I'm self-regulating, but I look at our own church and I go, I think it's a pretty healthy church. We don't have any scandal. We don't have any financial you know, shenanigans. We've never had any sexual scandals in the history of our church of any kind, not even a hint of that, not even a slight accusation of that. So you can have healthy churches, but it takes transparency. It takes focus. And it takes a very high value of honoring what God honors more than wanting power, wanting control, wanting say-so, wanting to demand rights or maintain your status quo or make sure that you keep your stuff or whatever it is. And I see, I, I, I think that's what happens to big entities like the Southern Baptists. Like, it starts off as a spirit-driven movement. And then that movement says, you know what? We need people to organize the movement. So we're going to hire somebody to be the leader of the movement. And then we need to organize the money of the movement that the leader is leading. And so we need to hire a treasurer with now what we're going to call the president of the movement. And with that, well, we need to create a headquarters. And then the headquarters is going to look at over the other properties of the other little entities that are a part of the movement. And pretty soon you have a movement that has stuff right? It's been monetized. And as soon as it's monetized, the movement becomes kind of a monument. And then you have to protect the monument at all costs because it costs money to run a monument. And so when there's a problem, you got to sweep that thing under the rug because it affects the income of the monument. It affects the ability to keep it going. And then pretty soon you don't have a monument. You just have a museum and you're curating all the stuff that was of the movement to keep this museum kind of running afloat, looking pretty, keep everything swept and clean. And you hang new things in the museum, but you're really not making a difference. And that's kind of the Southern Baptist, right? At this point, they know it. They're not making a difference. They, like everybody else, has lost numbers, right? And they've lost numbers because they are distracted by trying to maintain the thing as opposed to move the kingdom forward. And that's always the risk. And when we think we're moving the kingdom forward by trying to elevate successful people. We're not really moving the kingdom forward. In fact, we're going to wound the movement of the kingdom because successful people inevitably display themselves as sinful people. Um, I'm not going to say everybody that's successful is sinful, but my point is if we're saying, hey, they're really good at this and we're going to elevate them at that level, even though we know of things going on, we see the shenanigans, we know the improprieties, whatever else, and yet we keep them there, their success will ultimately ruin the reputation of the kingdom every single time. And so I think to be able to be a healthy church in uh, the United States, we just have to kind of do things different, right? We have to not hold our leaders to being successful. We need to hold our leaders to being faithful. To make this right, we need to look at leaders not that have this kind of uh, 
Conan the Barbarian approach to the kingdom, like, you know, tough, strong, steely, bitey, witty, you know, we need to look and go, did they seem like Jesus? And, and in fact, my wife is reading a book. It's called Gentle and Lowly. And it's interesting because the writer of the book, Ortland, he says, um, it's very interesting, interesting when you read through the Gospels, the only self-descriptor that Jesus gives of himself, right, where he describes his personality, which is really interesting, uh, he describes himself as gentle and lowly, right? This is in Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30. I mean, think about that. Of all the ways he can self-describe, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. But when evangelicals want leaders, they don't put it in the job description. We're looking for a gentle and lowly person. They're like, we want a strong visionary leader that isn't afraid to take risks and all this stuff. And I, I get that. Like, I'm not even trying to put that down. I think you can be gentle and lowly and take risks and things like that. But, but I think church leadership is, is a, is an easy location for, um, narcissistic people to land. Because they they get a following of people, they get to be put on a stage, they get a bright light, they get a, a, you know like this exposure to kind of the libido release of leadership, you know, or whatever else. And like like from that, it draws in people that aren't gentle and lowly, but they are focused and driven. And we go, well, that's good enough. That's even better. We want focused and driven. We don't want to look cowardly to the world. But Jesus was gentle and lowly. So I think we need to look to the leaders that are gentle and lowly. The leader that doesn't want the control is the leader you want in control, right? I mean, that's what Jesus says. The greatest is least. The first is last. Like, we have to do it that way. We also have to start looking at women very differently than the way evangelicalism has. We need to see them in every conceivable way, way more like an equal partner in the grace of life, as opposed to like, well, in our complementarian model, you're below me, I'm above you. This is what has led to so much mistreatment of women, so much, not just sexual abuse, but I think even the mistreatment of sidelining them, of looking at them as kind of like, oh, okay, well, you can't really be a part of the leadership structure because again, you know, hey, you're a woman and I'm a man and, you know, it's created all kinds of mess and causticness. And I think even in the political side as Christians, we need to stop being so political. We, If we're truly defined like Jesus, both political arms, both love us and is frustrated simultaneously with us, right? Honestly, the Republican conservative base should be frustrated by a Christian and should love them. And a liberal base that it's Democrat should love Christians and be frustrated by them. Like we should not find an easy home in either one of those camps. And tragically, we try to find a home in either one of those camps. That's not the way it should be. That's how we can be different, should be different. We should be like, yeah, I represent a kingdom that's not of this world. And so all sides love some parts of it, hate some parts of it. And that's exactly where we're meant to be. And if we are super cozy with one or the other, we're missing the point that we shouldn't really be cozy with both. We should be friends with both. We should love the neighbors in both. We should not be hostile to either one of those sides, right? Honestly, that's the thing that drives me nuts. When I see the hostility of believers on the left or believers on the right having a hostility to the other side, that is as destructive as anything because the church is called to unity. We're called to a like-mindedness. We're called to a spirit-ledness that should make us look different, right? And so even within the SBC to see the divide and they're saying, hey, we need to be unified, even our diversity. I'm like, right, but boy, there is a lot of skeletons that's got to come out of closets. There is a lot of humility that needs to rise to the surface. There is going to be a lot of needed accountability and you're going to have to start to demote 
the success drivers and promote the humble and lowlies and from that perhaps the SBC and also broader evangelicalism can kind of come back to center when it comes to the center of Christ being centered on him and making a difference in this world for him. Because again, like I said, the toxins of the SBC are the same toxins in evangelicalism at large. And what is truly, I think, unique about this current time is uh, evangelicalism feels like it's on the ropes culturally. So it used to have more clout. It doesn't have the clout. It feels like, uh, you know, that that a kind of a secular society is bearing down on it. And it, when it does that, it has one or two cho- choices to, to, to really decide on. One choice is to say, hey, when culture is bearing down on you, you do like Jesus, you go judo, and you give yourself to the good of the culture. In other words, you become the servant of all. You begin to look at how you can bless the world around you. You love those who are against you. You model the gospel to them by how you respond to their bias or their anti-faithness or whatever we want to call it. In other words, you love disbelieving people, and, and, and from that, you're actually fulfilling the kingdom mandate. That's one way. Or the other is you become a Pharisee. And I think evangelicalism is deeply at risk of being a Pharisee. And here's why so more than most times. A, a, a Pharisee at the core is somebody that loves rules more than they love gospel. Uh, they are hypocritical, which, again, the SBC has proven itself to be boldly hypocritical with all these scandals and problems and sins and messes that they got to deal with. It's, you know, again, their house is a rack inside, right? Um, and, and so that pharisaical spirit of loving law more than loving love, of loving laws and rules and morality more than gospel, of having hypocrisy, greed is another form of what is true to the Pharisee, right? Jesus says this, right? You're, 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 you're filled with greed and envy. Um, and so all of that is true. But what then really makes that potent is when you feel you have no power. Right? The Pharisees felt they had no power against Rome, and so you become more militant in all of these things, and you become more um, like desperate to try to get power back, and you'll become more reckless in the process of that, and you will utilize more earthly tools and earthly words and earthly weapons even to try to accomplish that. I think that is where we are most at risk right now in our pharisaical potential is because now we don't even have power. And so you become desperate in that. And this is where I think the message of Jesus is so then potent and says, you know what, you got to, you got to get back to the way I do the kingdom, right? You got to get back to the fact that up is down and left is right in the kingdom. And all those things that require the deepest strength and the deepest courage you have to do. Because to be a peacemaker takes deep strength and courage. To love your enemies takes deep strength and courage. To be gentle and lowly in a world of kind of elevating superiority and strength, and it's all about how high you can go, it takes courage and strength to be gentle and lowly in this world. And so the SBC, when people say, what do you think the SBC needs to do? I think it's what evangelicalism needs to do. 
It needs to get off its high horse and bow its face in the dirt before its God and say, God, we've been proud. We've been controlling. We've been slanderous of the world around us. We've been slanderous of one another. We have not sought to address the, the mess that is in our own house. Judgment begins at the house of God, Peter says, right? Like we haven't done that. We're good at judging the world. We're good at running out all the boogeyman's. Like I even look at the SBC where they're like, the greatest danger to the SBC right now is the woke culture in the SBC. I'm like, there's no woke people in the SBC. Are you kidding me, man? And when I say that, I get it. There may be like a thousand SBCers that are woke, right? Like the majority of the SBC is far from woke. So to make wokeness the great danger, the SBC was just a boogeyman they were creating to make people afraid that the SBC was being led astray by the woke crowd. No, they're not. They're not. I've never seen an SBC church with a rainbow flag. I've never seen an SBC church with a Black Lives Matter flag. I've never seen an SBC church with a big woke campaign. I've seen SBC churches that say, hey, we should deal with racism because we think it's still around. That's not a bad cause. Probably still is, right? I've seen SBC churches say, hey, we need to care about the LGBTQ community because they got forgotten or we were really mean to them or we shamed them and a lot of our kids killed themselves because we were too harsh with them as parents. I go, hey, that's a pretty good cause, but that doesn't make you woke. That just makes you want to love your neighbor and sensitive to the real life problems that are going on today, right? So what the SBC needs to do is stop trying to pretend like all the enemies are not really the enemies because the real enemy is our own sinfulness, our own pride, our own elevation of people that excel at success and a lack of elevating people that are actually truly faithful, gentle, and lowly, that are actually embodying the stuff of Jesus. We've elevated people that care more about getting things done through political means than getting things done through kingdom means. And so that's what it's all about. So again, like I said, this is musings. I could probably go on all day going off. But to me, I kind of look at the SBC and I look at broader evangelicalism and I go, we're all suffering from the same problem, right? And the cost of this is our dirty laundry will continue to be aired in an internet environment, right? Back in the day, you could stuff this stuff, a pastor can move, whatever else, but now it's going to be there for everybody. The power of the press is in the hands of every single person with a phone. And so from that, all the more, what is done in darkness will be thrust into the light. I almost wonder if Jesus is like, ah, man, I know the internet's coming. <laughs> you know, like it's going to be thrust into the light. So here's how we have to do things differently as Christians. We actually have to act like Jesus, like go figure, right? We actually have to make the decision that what we do in privacy, we don't care if it's made public. That's what we have to do. We should have to, we, we want to function literally in such a way that we go, I would love for the ACLU to come in and go over our books and check out our stuff and see what we do in our protocols and understand our ministry and everything else. Like you pick the group that you think is most opposed to us. We should love for them to shine a light in us, right? That's how we should live because that is consistency. We are only the Christian we are in private. We are only the Christian we are at home, right? These public demonstrations and these public proclamations mean nothing because God is watching all the time. And frankly, now the world is watching all the time. And I get why the world says, nope, I'm out, not interested. That's crazy sauce, man. I don't want to go to Crazyville with you crazy people because you can't even get your own stuff figured out, much less you're less pointing out the problems of our world. Man, this is turning into a rant-a-thon at this point. So, um, man, like I said, I got thoughts on this. And so I'm pretty passionate that we need to pull our heads out of the sand. I know you thought something else. Might apply. Um, but we got to pull our heads out of the sand and we have to clean up our own space, right? We do. We have to clean up our own space. We really, frankly, don't have the time 
or the energy, and certainly we don't have the moral equity to point out whatever social problem you see today, right? Like last week I talked about transgenderism and I'm like, Christians have time to talk about transgender athletes? Really? Because we're apparently we have a lot of mess of just trying to deal with pastors that have taken advantage of women and people who have molested kids and financial improprieties and elevating angry pastors that destroy entire areas. <laughs> like, like it really seems like before we even worry about anything in the broader society, we should try to be light and salt, useful light and salt. And I think that starts with genuine repentance. I think that, sh- that that means repentance that actually invokes true change, that actually holds leaders accountable to those changes, right? That calls for leaders to be removed if there are clear abuses. And just because they're successful and your, your church may tank or your ministry may tank doesn't matter because it's the reputation of Christ that is most wounded in all of this stuff, right? I know it's not... It, as soon as I worry about my reputation more than Christ's reputation, then I've completely missed what he invited me to be about, right? Because it's all about him. It's not about me. If my reputation has to get laid flat so that his can stay seen as pure in our world, then that is what we need to do, right? That's what counts. That's what matters. And so again, I, again, there's lots of messes. And I think there has to be lots of ownership. And we have to elevate a different set of priorities, Because we do, we've allowed that American spirit of the strong, determined, driven, visionary leader to become more prized than the disposition of Christ, right? We just, we don't, we don't want to elevate that. We go, ah, that's, that's too weak. That's too kind of manby-pamby-ish or whatever else. And I go, no, that's, that's real strength, right? Meekness, strength under control, right? That's what the SBC needs. That's what evangelicalism needs. That's what every one of us needs because the world desperately needs to see people that are more like Jesus than people that are in the name of Jesus, more like the world, right? Because there's a lot of stuff out there that's, it's in the name of Jesus, but it's driven by all the worldly principles, right? Worrying about reputation of us more than Christ, Worrying about revenue more than Christ. Worrying about um, lawsuits more than Christ. Worrying about maintaining a sense of complementarianism that's really more about patriarchal society elements than it is about biblical complementarianism, right? Like all of that stuff, right? Picking stupid fights that aren't real things. Going after boogeymen that aren't real in real existence. Being more political than we are kingdom. Like all of this, all of this is creating a mess. All of this is causing many to leave and many more to say, I would never join because you offer nothing different. In fact, you just offer constraint and embarrassment and a sense of hypocrisy that I wouldn't want to join up with. I'd have to be explaining to my friends why I joined the crazy cult of Christianity that can't get its own stuff together. Like people don't want to join that. That's why so many people joined the early church because it was so different. It wasn't like the world. It was truly holy. It was uncommon from anything anybody had ever seen. It displayed love and mercy and justness. And when we're doing that, more than we're trying to protect our monuments and our little museums for Jesus and protect our own reputations, the more we're making it about him and not about us, the more we will be everyday missionaries.